Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hi, everyone. Before we get into the grab bag, we wanted to bring you up to speed on some breaking news. Justice Alito has dropped a new diss track. And spoiler alert, everything that's wrong about the Supreme Court is everyone's fault but his own. And he is a real victim in all of this. That's right. That's actually real victim, capital R, capital V, because our boy Sam, or for those of you who are purists, Justice Samuel Alito, has decided to do an exclusive interview with the Wall Street Journal. And he did so right after we recorded the last two episodes. But you will not avoid us, Sam. We weren't going to let this masterclass in grace and judicious behavior go unnoticed. No. This was late Friday on April 28th when the Wall Street Journal dropped an interview with Sam Alito. And it is not really an interview interview, right? It just includes a bunch of statements the justice gave to the Wall Street (laughs) Journal reporters. A very, very normal thing to do, especially considering the substance of what he said. So we're just going to tick through some of it before we get into our grab bag content. So first up is some Justice Alito cosplaying Inspector Gadget, by which I mean some updates on the Dobbs leak investigation, at least according to Sam Alito. So Justice Alito tells the Wall Street Journal that the marshal, quote, did a good job with the resources that were available to her. And he also agrees that the evidence was insufficient for a public accusation. But rather than just stopping there, like (laughs) any good investigator without any real evidence might, Justice Alito went further. Like the Hardy Boys fan he is, he noted that, quote, I personally have a pretty good idea who is responsible, but that's different from the level of proof that is needed to name somebody, end quote. And again, I just want to highlight, this is not going to win any Pulitzers. This is not real (laughs) investigative journalism. (laughs) But that did not stop Justice Alito, who wanted to let us know that he is certain not only about the identity of the leaker, but also about the motive of the leaker. So he said, quote, this was part of an effort to prevent the Dobbs draft from becoming the decision of the court. That's how it was used for those six weeks by people on the outside as part of the campaign to try to intimidate the court. And lest you think these are just the inconsequential ramblings of an old man who suffers from Fox News or Newsmax brain or whatever it's called these days, uh, this intimation was picked up pretty quickly by some other people. So I read two National Review posts talking about this, about how Alito suspects there's a leaker, 
And therefore, they intimated other people must also suspect someone as well. And another piece about how the leaker supposedly has some kind of ethical obligation to disclose to their clients that they are, in fact, the leaker. Just totally bizarro stuff. But I read these posts to kind of imply that there's a non-zero chance that it might be a matter of time before we learn who Alito suspects because some outlet or conservative talking head is going to identify them. And at the ethics hearing this past week in the Senate, Senator John Kennedy almost seemed to echo Alito's interview in the following statement. The Dobbs decision was not leaked by a left-wing blogger. Why? That's worth asking. I'd also just like to sound a note of caution about Justice Alito's jurisprudence on the death penalty and criminal procedure more generally. If he thinks he can just give a statement to the Wall Street Journal that he personally has a pretty good idea of who is responsible for the leak, even though the investigation found insufficient proof, and he is certain about the motive for the leaker. This is literally the man in charge of determining whether to stay certain executions and to determine whether someone was afforded sufficient process at their criminal trials. I'm beginning to have some doubts. <laughs> or beginning to understand why he always thinks the process given was sufficient, because this in his mind is perfectly sufficient process. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So it is part of a coherent worldview, I suppose we give him that. But back to the interview. So he goes on to Wait, no, no. Back to the interview. Interview. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that correction, Melissa. In whatever it was, Justice Alito continued, and he said that the leak made the justices who were perceived to be in the majority, quote, targets of assassination because, quote, it was rational for people to believe that they might be able to stop the decision in Dobbs by killing one of us. Like This is an Alito quote in this interview. This is so insane. It's so insane. The journal also noted that a few pundits on the left speculated that the leaker might have been a conservative attempting to lock in the five justice majority and overturn the constitutional right to abortion. And Alito responds to this by saying, quote, that's infuriating to me. Look, this made us targets of assassination. Would I do that to myself? Would the five of us have done that to ourselves? It is quite implausible. And also, like, his recounting about what the leak did, we can grant that it did contribute to the man going to Justice Kavanaugh's house in an attempt to possibly try and assassinate him. But as Joan Biskupic reports in her book, something else the leak did is harden the five justice majority, right? And he is unable, unable to see this because his only view of this is through his usual lens, which is like the Democrats are a threat to the world and I am a victim of this. But to be clear... Justice Alito doesn't necessarily feel unsafe. As he explained in his air quote interview, he doesn't feel physically unsafe because we now have a lot of protection. He is, quote, driven around in basically a tank, and I'm not really supposed to go any place by myself without the tank and my members of the police force, end quote. That's just because you don't have friends, dude. Like, that's why <laughs> you're rolling around in a tank. <laughs> I'm sorry, Melissa, this is erasure of Mrs. Wright and the many other friends that we know from various reporting that Justice Alito dines with, at least on occasion. But you don't need the tank to walk across the street to the special (laughs) clubhouse that was purchased for you. Justice Alito, again, in this interview, did not want to leave anything on the table. So some more bangers were spit. Um, He told the journal that, quote, 
This type of concerted attack on the court and on individual justices is, quote, new during my lifetime. Narrator voice, there were actual literal billboards asking to <laughs> impeach Earl Warren after Brown versus Board of Education. So this person who espouses a history and traditions view of constitutional interpretation once again has proven that he's pretty shit at history and tradition. Anyway, he continues, quote, we are being hammered daily, and I think quite unfairly in a lot of instances, and nobody, practically nobody is defending us. The idea has always been that judges are not supposed to respond to criticisms, but if the courts <laughs> are being unfairly attacked, the organized bar will come to their defense. Instead, quote, if anything, they've participated to some degree in these attacks, end quote. So, one, lawyers, you went to law school to sign up to be part of right. the cult of the court. <laughs> right. And when the court is unfairly maligned, you're supposed to put down your briefs and take up arms to defend Justice Alito and his ilk. And if you don't, it's completely unfair and nobody, practically nobody is defending them. Well, and also judges are not supposed to respond to criticisms. Is he like, but I'm a fucking justice. And so I can do this. I mean, like, what is this? We made him. We made him do this. Look what you made me do. Exactly. <laughs> and just to go back to the history for just a moment. So, Melissa, you mentioned the post-Brown attacks on Justice Warren and the entire Warren court. The historian Kevin Cruz has a great piece in Bloomberg really effectively debunking the idea that critiques of the court or even challenges to the court's legitimacy are in any way new. Can we just point out Kevin Cruz is an historian, right? Like someone <laughs> trained in historical methodologies. In this case, however, I think a simple Google search could have turned this <laughs> yeah, up. I mean, sure like, I, I'm not a historian, but I am familiar with www.google.com. And books. Well, Alito right? is apparently <laughs> unfamiliar with both of those things. And, you know, back to the Alito pity parade for a second, you know, the piece of the, quote, interview that is about the Supreme Court's legitimacy is basically him saying, I'm taking away your rights. You must praise me, like, while I do so. It's the audacity of taking away people's rights and then turning around being like, well, where's my parade? You know, that really does it for me. And it's it's like, he's like, why aren't you welcoming your new overlords? Like, yeah. And it's not just the Wall Street Journal interview and Alito in its pages that is striking this note. Just as the presses were drawing on this interview, out popped a National Review piece that was a defense. So now we're talking, we're shifting from Alito to Thomas, but a defense of Justice Thomas titled, quote, Justice Thomas acted properly and did not have to disclose his trips. So that, that you know, headline really captures the content of the piece. But what's what's interesting and worth flagging... It's no. not interesting, Kate. It's actually... This, this is, is the world's... Unsurprising. Un unsurprising. World's best. This you? Like, <laughs> yeah, really. I will tell you, Melissa, who wrote it. It was written or co-written by Mark Pauletta who not only personally attended some of the Harlan Crow-funded junkets that he is saying Thomas could obviously participate in, and it's outrageous for anyone to suggest otherwise, <laughs> but Pauletta was so central a player that he actually appears. <laughs> he is one of the characters depicted in the weird pastoral painting that we have talked about, the one featuring Crow and Thomas and Leonard Leo and... 
Mark Paoletta. And no, Mark Paoletta did not <laughs> mention Bo the fact. Rutledge, the DA. Right. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Right. Don't want to erase. Yeah. So I guess, I don't know if his defense is forthcoming. Um, but, you know, Paoletta did not mention this fact in his extremely spirited, nothing to see here defense of Crow and Thomas's relationship. So because that too broke just after we finished recording our last shows, wanted to slip it in. Who is running PR for these dudes? Like, is it the same PR firm that's handling the royal family? Because they are like mangling this. I mean, whoever it is, I think they're getting an awful lot of money from Leonard Leo. Like, they are well paid, even though they might not be great at their jobs. I mean, Galaxy Brains, like, this was a dumb PR strategy. Like, find someone else to write this <laughs> terrible headline and article. But back to the Alito interview. Interview. Justice Alito was unwilling to discuss some things with the Wall Street Journal. So again, judicial restraint, right? <laughs> he said, quote, I'll stay away from that. When asked about ethics accusations against Justice Thomas from partisan media, um, you know, there are limits, people. But he happily addressed the sexual assault allegations <laughs> against Justice Kavanaugh, saying, and this is a quote, quote, after Justice Kavanaugh was accused of being a rapist during the Senate confirmation hearings, he made an impassioned speech, made an impassioned speech, and he was criticized because it was supposedly not judicious, not the proper behavior for a judge to speak in those terms. I don't know if somebody calls you a rapist, end quote, who among us would not respond in this way? I mean, that's I the TLDR. I like how he calls it a supposedly not judicious speech. Brett Kavanaugh literally screamed and cried, shrieking. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I Laughing is a coping mechanism for me. Shrieking at the Senate Judiciary Committee, what goes around comes around pounded his fists and said the allegations against him were part of a conspiracy to get revenge on behalf of the Clintons. I mean, I get why Justice Alito thinks that's all cool and normal, since he is basically sharing his own conspiracy theories with the Wall Street Journal and acting injudiciously. It's just otherworldly to see this described in that manner. Justice Alito also has an idea of who is behind the court's plummeting approval ratings. And spoiler alert, he thinks it's not him. It's not the court stripping away people's rights, allowing state legislatures to literally torture women. No, no, that's not it. What he says is, here is the culprit. Then those who are attacking us say, look how unpopular they are. Look how low their approval rating has sunk. Yeah, well, what do you expect when you're day in and day out? They're illegitimate. They're engaging in all sorts of unethical conduct. They're doing this. They're doing that. So it is the critics of the court who are not the court itself who are responsible for the public losing faith in the court. So newsflash, I think we should share with Justice Alito, which is that people are not going to start thinking you're illegitimate just because other people say that you are illegitimate. Maybe it is that you are acting illegitimately. At least indulge that possibility. Nope. Doesn't check out. <laughs> Can't be. It's me. I? I'm the problem. <laughs> no. Justice Alito also happily spoke about some of his other favorite topics, namely the shadow docket and withdrawing medication that millions of women might want access to, like mifepristone. So in this interview, we learned the identity of the real victim of the shadow docket. It's not transparency. It's not the legitimacy of the Supreme Court as an institution. In fact, the real victim of the so-called attack on the shadow docket is, in fact, Justice Alito himself. He finds the shadow docket applications to be a nuisance. They're, quote, very disruptive. But what are we supposed to do? They are brought to us. Like, basically, you brought us the shadow docket. And I just decided these shadow dockety things. And don't get mad at me if they're shadowy. 
on yeah. the shadow docket. So yeah, like he's the real victim because he has to sift through all of these nuisance filings that weirdly have major substantive consequences in many cases. He also resorted to one of his favorite tactics. I think we might call this both sidesism, maybe whataboutism. And he specifically called out the Biden administration for seeking review of the order clawing back the two decades old approval of Mifepristone. According to Justice Alito, quote, the last administration brought a lot of applications to us because a lot of its programs were enjoined. That's because they were all fucking insane. <laughs> this administration is doing the same thing right now. Not quite the same thing, but let me continue. The Solicitor General has said that she's likely to file an application here to stay the Fifth Circuit's order in the case involving the Mephestopro, however you pronounce the word, end quote. Yeah, there is that odd timing issue. So, of course, even though the interview, scare quotes interview, was released just last week, it obviously was given before the court's ruling on the application in the Mephapristone case. So I don't know what explains the delay. Like they were, I don't know, trying to- Probably trying to figure out how to pronounce Mifepristone. He's like, hold on, don't release it until I get this right. They were workshopping the wonderful language, like, and I quote, um, I personally have a pretty good idea who is responsible. Like it, it took some weeks to workshop that one. To perfection. Here's a theory. Maybe he names the person in the Wall Street Journal report. <laughs> Lawyers are like, after a, after a couple of weeks of agonizing over whether this is a risk worth taking, decide they can't publish the name. But in yeah. addition to the weird kind of timing reveal there, the fact that he doesn't, or at least didn't a few weeks ago, know how to pronounce the name of the medication <laughs> that he would have happily slapped additional restrictions on. This is the medication he is personally second-guessing the FDA's judgment on. I mean, that is really some chutzpah. Like, it really is. You say There's chutzpah, also- I say something else. <laughs> <laughs> that was like an Elena Kagan. I had another word in mind, Kate. <laughs> Really glad I got cut off there. Yeah. (laughs) Finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't note the portions of the Alito interview in which the justice mused about topics such as why people like Justice Scalia more than him. (laughs) And the quote is, nobody can say for sure, Sam Alito says, but I'm willing to bet he, you know, Justice Scalia, would have been on the side that's been so heavily criticized. But when you're in dissent, Justice Alito says, well, then his ideas are amusing and interesting. He spoke at a lot of law schools and he was honored at law schools, but he wasn't a threat because those views were not prevailing. Well, Hardy Boy has done it again. He solved the mystery about why people like Justice Scalia more than him. The mystery of the court's dwindling legitimacy. Uh, That's all we have time for with this banger of an interview. Um, We should really come back. Actually, this would be a great one to do a dramatic. We're going to go. Yeah, (laughs) this would be a great one for a dramatic reading. Um, We should act this out. But we have some really great content because you all, unlike Justice Alito, didn't have to call up the Wall Street Journal. You (laughs) directly slid into our DMs and gave us some awesome grab bag content. So let's get to that. This podcast is brought to you by the Summit for Religious Freedom. In response to Christian nationalists, extremists, and their political allies working overtime to impose their narrow religious beliefs, the Summit for Religious Freedom is taking place on April 13th through 16th, 2024 in Washington, D.C., 
learn how to fight back in order to defend LGBTQ plus rights, abortion, contraception, and reproductive rights, our public schools, our democracy, and the separation of church and state. The Summit for Religious Freedom, or SRF, is the hub for this collective fight. The SRF.org, that's T-H-E-S-R-F.org, has all the details. Use promo code STRICT for 10% off registration. Anyone can attend virtually, and current students can attend the summit virtually for free. Scholarships are also available. The summit is hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. SRF sold out last year, and tickets are going fast. Don't sleep on this. Visit the SRF. Org today. And don't forget to use promo code STRICT for 10% off registration. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out front to win. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Today we are doing our very first listener mailbag episode. It was so much fun to hear from so many of you. Hi, Strict Scrutiny. Hi, Strict Scrutiny. Hello, Strict Scrutiny. Good morning, Strict Scrutinizers. Hey, ladies. Hello, professors. I'm Melissa, Kate, and Leah. Calling from Los Angeles County, California. I work in Lower Manhattan. Austin, Texas. Spokane, Washington. From Washington, D.C. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, a.k.a. St. Slamany. I live in Ohio, South Carolina. I am from Australia. From outside Houston, Texas. I'm a deputy public defender. I teach math and statistics. I have no legal training. I am a mom and work in admin part-time. I work in HVAC. I'm a second-year capital defense attorney. I'm an aerospace engineer. I work in political ads integrity in the tech space. I'm a corporate lawyer. I'm a federal government employee. I'm a public defender. I'm a actor and college instructor. I work as a litigation and labor and employment senior paralegal. I'm not a lawyer or law student, but I work in biomedical research. I'm a lawyer, volunteer abortion clinic escort, and ice skating instructor. Strict Scrutiny is my soundtrack every morning when I walk my dog. I listen to you mostly while I'm at work. I usually listen early Monday mornings as I sip my espresso. I listen with my mom. I listen to your podcast when I'm driving to work. After I drop off my kids at school and before I start teaching. I listen to Strict Scrutiny as soon as I can on Monday mornings. I listen to the podcast as one of those working stiffs on the subway. I love to listen to Strict Scrutiny as I'm lacing up my skates. When I'm driving around between classes that I teach. I love listening to the pod. I usually do that while I'm driving or when I'm watering my plants. I've been a listener for about three years. And I look forward to your podcast every Monday morning. And for today's episode, we're joined by two special guests, our producer, Melody Rowell, and production assistant, Ashley Mizuo. Welcome to the show, Ashley and Melody. Hello. (laughs) 
Hi. You got to turn your cameras on and you're not (laughs) muted. Amazing. I don't know like what I'm going to do when you start saying, Melody, take that out. Like, do I actually respond? You can. can Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. You make make clear that you decide. We ask, but you ultimately (laughs) make make the calls. That's right. (laughs) Um, So listeners, Melody and Ashley are going to help us read questions that we received from you all. So the way we're going to do this is we are going to group the questions into three categories. So first category is case-specific questions, where you post questions related to specific cases the court is considering or has decided. Second category is questions about the court and the courts and the law more generally. A lot of these were about court reform or responses to things the court is doing. And then the third category is a motley grab bag of questions, big and small, heavy and light. They are all over the place and they were delightful. So let's get right to it. If we don't get to your question, please do not take it personally or feel badly. Like we just, we don't have as much time. We like to do the whole season with just your questions, but we can't do that. It just means we have to do another one of these episodes again. So don't take it personally, okay? First up are the case-specific questions. So we received several questions about equality-related arguments about abortion rights. So we received this particular question from Aditya. My question is, is there any hope of getting Justices Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh to take the Equal Protection Clause more seriously? I thought the way Alito treated this and the Dobbs majority opinion was very, very weak. And I wonder if the more sane members of the court might reconsider this. And then Katie similarly wanted to know, what will it take to get the Equal Rights Amendment into the Constitution? And once ratified, would this finally make it impossible to make abortion illegal? And then we also got a question from Chris, who wanted to know whether ratification of the ERA would have prevented Dobbs, and would it also protect transgender individuals? So, Melissa, you have written a lot about the equality basis for abortion rights. Do you want to take that one, and then we can talk about the Equal Rights Amendment? So, as I have written with Reva Siegel and Serena Mayuri um, in our amicus brief in Dobbs, we do think that there is sound footing for an equal protection argument for abortion rights. Um, Again, under the equal protection doctrine, sex-based classifications have to be reviewed under intermediate scrutiny, which means that they can only be sustained if they are substantially related to an important governmental purpose. And we argue, and I think it's pretty fair to say, that restrictions on abortion are a species of sex-based classification. So on that view, the government has to have a pretty important interest in restricting abortion, and its means of doing so have to be substantially related to promote that interest. And usually states like Mississippi talk about restricting abortion as necessary for women's health. But as we've argued in our brief, the steps that they've taken to promote women's health all seem to just be limited to limiting abortion. Um, There are other steps that Mississippi could have taken before it passed its very draconian abortion law that was upheld in Dobbs. It could have expanded Medicaid funding. That would have improved women's health. It could have expanded funding for temporary aid to needy families. It could have provided meaningful sex education. It didn't do any of those things. In fact, the only thing it really did to serve women's health was to limit abortion. And again, If there are these other alternatives that don't necessarily impact a sex-based classification in that way, like the state has to at least try those. And that's sort of the point of the equal protection argument. But as you know, equal protection is basically a shibboleth concocted by ladies and their lady parts. And Justice 
Alito didn't really feel the need to address it in any real detail, preferring instead to advert to Gedaldig versus Ayala, which is a 1970s era case that says that the state can discriminate on the basis of pregnancy because it's not a sex-based classification because not all women are pregnant. And we argue that there are later cases that might refute Gedaldig or even implicitly overrule Gedaldig, but we're just ladies with our lady parts, and who needs to listen to us? Not Sam Alito. So we didn't really get very far. And maybe just to explicitly tie this to the ERA, even if the ERA did become part of the Constitution, the ERA prohibits certain discrimination and distinctions on the basis of sex. But given that you have five votes on the Supreme Court for the idea that abortion restrictions are not distinctions or discriminations on the basis of sex, it's not clear that ratifying the ERA actually would mean restrictions on abortion have to be subject to intermediate scrutiny or outright prohibited. And I think that kind of lesson also holds when we're asking about whether the ERA would protect transgender individuals as well. The justices would ask whether distinctions on the basis of gender identity are distinctions or discrimination on the basis of sex. On one hand, you have the court's opinion in Bostock versus Clayton County, which concluded that discriminating on the basis of gender identity was prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex in violation of Title VII. But it's not clear that they would say the text of the ERA necessarily means the same thing because of Neil Gorsuch's word science. Yeah. And maybe just to take a step back just for a moment, if people aren't kind of closely following the saga of the ERA, the ERA is this proposed constitutional amendment actually first proposed 100 years ago in 1923, but passed in Congress. So the way Article 5 of the Constitution says you can amend the Constitution is primarily by a two-thirds vote in each House of Congress and then ratification in three-quarters of the states, which is 38 states. So it's a big number. In 1972, Congress did pass the Equal Rights Amendment. It initially looked like it was sailing toward ratification. We've talked in previous episodes about that kind of stalling out largely as a result of the advocacy efforts by one Phyllis Schlafly. But the ERA stopped at 35 votes, never made it to 38 in the 1970s. Um, But there has been a renewed push really since the election of Donald Trump. Um, So in 2017 and then 2018 and then 2020, three more states ratified the ERA. So there actually are 38 states that have right now ratified the ERA, which is what the Constitution requires. But the catch is that when the ERA was passed in 72, it had a deadline attached to it. First 1979, then 1982. Um, The 38 states didn't happen by those deadlines. And in the interim, some other states have tried to rescind their ratifications. So there's this real question about whether the ERA is already part of the Constitution and actually who decides if it is. And there was a hearing in April in the Senate to basically declare the ERA ratified regardless of the existing deadline. But even if the thing were recognized as part of the Constitution as the 28th Amendment, all of the questions about what the ERA means that Leah was just talking about would still be presented. And it's anyone's guess, I think, how this conservative court would read the protections of the ERA. But I do think that the court would be required to revisit some of this in light of a new constitutional basis for arguments in favor of abortion rights. But because the court has such a narrow view of what the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment covers. So that's a long answer, but a bunch of great questions. We also received this question from Mimi. Um, As a Jewish woman, many of the Jewish faith believe that the baby is not a person until birth. And we hold that life of the mother and her autonomy is given deference over a fetus. Isn't that a good avenue to pursue in the next steps in the Dobbs case? Why is this not a point of attack on these religiously tinged decisions? 
So it actually is being raised in some of the current challenges to abortion restrictions. So there is a challenge in Ohio and challenges elsewhere that actually argue that these restrictions on abortion infringe people's religious rights because they require them to act in ways that are not consistent with their religious views on life. Unfortunately, Organizations that are supposed to be devoted to religious liberty have been filing briefs in these cases, questioning whether these religious beliefs are in fact sincere. And you have Republican legal commentators arguing that liberal Jews, as well as maybe also conservative Jews, can't have serious religious beliefs or their religious beliefs can't be burdened because they don't have actual religious obligations. So formally, right, it's true that given the law that the Supreme Court has recited, which is even laws that don't single out religion can violate individuals' religious freedom when they impose differential burdens on those religious believers or require them to act in ways inconsistent with their religion, those challenges seem like good ones. It's not clear that courts will actually follow them in cases like these. Next up, we have a question from Kate in Spokane. As the abortion fight narrows its focus here, I want to understand theoretically how far a state like Idaho can go with travel restrictions. Eastern Washington and North Idaho communities have always been closely intertwined. A lot of people live and work or own property across state lines, and I want to understand how far they can take it. I think it's right that the question about states' power to restrict travel is the kind of next frontier in many of the legal and political fights around abortion. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion in Dobbs in which he said he believed that restrictions on travel would be unconstitutional, right? Restrictions on travel of this sort designed to ban individuals from crossing state lines to obtain or provide abortion services. The issue wasn't presented in Dobbs. I am not sure how much comfort to take from those assurances of Justice Kavanaugh in a concurring opinion. I think there's at least a chance that Kavanaugh and Roberts and, of course, the liberal justices would vote to invalidate these laws if they reach the Supreme Court, but that doesn't mean that states might not be able to enforce them in the interim. Uh, so I think that there is, you know, very real reason for concern about states, at least in the short term, being able to enforce such restrictions. It's also worth noting for Kate's question um, that the law in Idaho that makes it a quote-unquote offense to traffic a minor for purposes of an abortion isn't necessarily about crossing state lines. It's just that there are so few abortion clinics available in Idaho. I think there are like maybe there's one or two at this point that realistically in order to get an abortion, you would have to cross state lines. So the law actually only makes it unlawful to traffic an individual within the state. And so that doesn't necessarily violate on its face the right to travel, but the broader purpose of it is to chill interstate travel for abortion purposes. So again, kind of a clever goblin move to avoid the whole question of interstate travel while also creating some chaos, making it harder for people to seek abortion care and making it harder for people or deterring people from going out of state to do so. We also got a question from Spencer who wanted to know, after Dobbs, would the trigger laws in various states be unconstitutional since the decision seems to suggest that these issues could be resolved by current legislatures that represent the current constituency? 
This is just one reason why Dobbs is not actually returning these issues to the democratic process, because you think of, for example, a state like Wisconsin that had a pre-Roe criminal abortion ban on the books that was enacted, what, in like 1830-something, before women could vote. And that law went back into effect, you know, after the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, even though a majority of Wisconsinites don't actually want the law on the books, but their legislature is so heavily gerrymandered that they don't have the votes in the legislature to actually repeal the law. And so we have seen some instances of some courts saying maybe some of these trigger laws violate provisions in state constitutions, but it's not clear that there is anything about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs that suggests it is unconstitutional under the federal constitution for a state to begin enforcing laws that have been on the books for a while, but haven't been enforced because of decisions like Roe, Casey, and Griswold. And of course, we're also seeing this potentially play out on the federal level when it comes to something like the Comstock Act, which is a federal law that potentially could be enforced in ways that prohibit access to medication, abortion, and contraception. And there are some individuals who want to bring that law back. And in the event of a 2024 Republican administration or Republican administration after that, right, we could see efforts to actually reinvigorate the Comstock Act as well. All right. Our next question is from Allie. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on whether, uh, or maybe more accurately, how hard the court is chomping at the bit to overrule capital defendant-friendly precedents like Lockett versus Ohio, Atkins versus Virginia, or Kennedy versus Louisiana. So just to explain those decisions for a second, Lockett versus Ohio is a decision that said juries had to be able to consider all of the mitigating evidence, basically the evidence counseling against imposition of the death penalty. Atkins versus Virginia is a decision that said it is unconstitutional to execute individuals who have below certain mental capacities. Um, And then Kennedy versus Louisiana is a decision that said it's unconstitutional to sentence someone to capital punishment for the crime of rape, rape of a child specifically. Um, So I think we are already seeing this court basically give the green light to states evading some of those decisions. Um, And in particular, the Supreme Court denied review in an Atkins case involving an individual called Nixon. So it was Nixon versus Florida. And the Florida courts denied the Atkins claim in 2009 because they said he hadn't shown he presented IQ scores below 70. But after that, the Supreme Court, when Justice Kennedy was still on the court, said you actually can establish an Atkins violation even without this 70 IQ score cutoff. Um, But the Florida Supreme Court said, eh, we don't actually need to apply that rule to any cases where individuals were previously sentenced and so upheld a death sentence under a rule that the U.S. Supreme Court said was unconstitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court let that decision stand. And so rather than intervening where state courts were effectively refusing to apply decisions like Atkins, basically they're just greenlighting that now. And so I think we are already seeing some whittling down, although it's not clear whether they are actually going to formally take a case to do so rather than just letting the state courts or other courts do the dirty work for them. Atkins is a case that since the court decided it, it essentially told states that they had the responsibility to implement this sort of broadly framed prohibition on executing individuals with serious intellectual disabilities and has not really done the work of policing states' compliance with that. And many states, I think, have been basically outright defiant and have defined intellectual disability in a way that actually didn't give meaningful effect to the holding in Atkins. But I think it is a real question. Is the court going to actually revisit and overrule some of these cases that kind of deemed categorically off-limits 
particular individuals or categories of individuals from eligibility for execution, right? Certain categories of individuals in the court that preceded this one, the court held in opinions by Justice Kennedy and Justice Stevens, certain individuals could not be executed by the state. And I think this court would be very happy to revisit some of those cases. But to my mind, it's a question of whether they do it directly or simply allow states to erode the protections or prohibitions announced in those cases. When we come back, we'll answer your questions about how to reform all this stuff at the Supreme Court. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Fashion's biggest night was last Monday, and just like every other year, Anna Wintour made sure to make this year's Met Gala red carpet mandatory watching. But did you know that before she was editor-in-chief of Vogue, Anna Wintour ran the fashion section for a little-known porn magazine called Viva in the 1970s? Check out Crooked's latest limited series podcast called Stift to learn about the rise and fall of Viva, the erotic magazine for women that rocked the publishing world in 1973, New York City, with a team of feminist writers and editors behind it and Porn King publisher at the helm. Were they always destined for failure? Find out now by listening to Stift, available for free on your favorite podcast platform. This next set of questions is about the Supreme Court and the courts and the law more generally. And a lot of the questions are about responses to or reforms of this particular court. Amy wants to know, totally hypothetically and not at all connected to current events, what, if any, is the process of removing a SCOTUS justice? Is there possibly an obscure layperson's path to doing this? You guys... (laughs) <laughs> Were there only the obscure layperson's path to doing uh, this? I, I kind of thought that's what this podcast was doing, right? Like if we put out <laughs> enough episodes, then Sam Alito would just be impeached? No. Alas, there Alas. is not. So the impeachment has a very high constitutional bar. Impeachment can happen with a majority in the House. So that's actually not crazy difficult. But actual removal, which would you know change the composition of the court, requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. So that's 67 votes in the Senate. And it's very hard to see that being a realistic possibility today. I mean, I will say resignation is a thing that has happened with Supreme Court justices, right? So the <coughs> last Fortis. extremely <laughs> scandal-ridden Supreme Court justice, Abe Fortas, who had a constellation of ethics and optics problems, some of which involved payments that were of a questionable nature, some of which involved relationships that were of a questionable nature, in particular with the sitting president. Melissa wants to I dispute mean, this characterization. I, okay, he I just, ends up resigning. I, I did not fire. see Abe Fortas on a private jet. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, did he it's keep so- the money? <laughs> I mean, uh, how much money was it? It, it was, was a, t- I think so, but it was a small amount. I mean, all I'm saying, I'm not excusing Abe Fortas. I'm just saying Abe Fortas resigned with bipartisan calls to do so for yeah. far less than what we are seeing today. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. I'm going to say. 
Also, Abe Fortas never got on the court after credible accusations of sexual harassment. So I'm going to put that out there, too. I mean, Abe Fortas seems to have had like a semblance of shame, a sense of shame. So justice for Abe Fortas. (laughs) (laughs) He can't be a justice, but justice for him. We also received a similar question from Michelle. I would like to know if there is any scenario in any of the indictments that Trump is potentially facing where he could be convicted and found guilty and then the crime that he committed would be enough to remove his Supreme Court justices from the Supreme Court. There, too, the possible remedy is impeachment and removal. Like, that is the possible remedy, and that faces kind of the same obstacles that we were referring to just now. So um, we got a couple questions. If you can't remove the guys, how about you add some new ones? Um, And maybe not dudes. Uh, So questions about expanding the court. Let's hear them. My question is, uh, what would the implications be for expanding the amount of justices there are in the Supreme Court? And this one, too. What does Congress or the president need to do to increase the number of Supreme Court justices? So, you know, like the process is pretty easy. You pass a law and sign the law. There's nothing in the Constitution that fixes the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And here, too, the obstacle is getting through the process of legislation and actual signing by the president. Any law like this would right now, under current rules, be subject to the filibuster, which means you need 60 votes in the Senate. I don't think there are 49 votes right now in the Senate for this, but that's the actual process. You know, pass a law, sign it. I think the major implication that always gets brought up when court expansion or court recalibration or whatever you want to call it is raised is this prospect that it's just a race to the bottom and that with each administration or with each ideological turn on the court, you will simply be met with an interest in expanding the court even further. And so, again, I think people worry that If court expansion happens, it will just, again, be an ongoing saga and suddenly we'll have a court with 150 people. Would that be so bad, though? Like, that's the question I always have. No, I mean, I don't think so. That's the implication and that's the calculus. You know, you could obviously pair that with appointments of justices, not with life tenure, but rather for a term of years so that you aren't basically appointing a bunch of people who can serve indefinitely, but would only serve for particular durations. Now, of course, if you're worried about getting into right a tit for tat for the other side, you might not do that if you think the other side won't. Um, but yeah, right. Like that implication doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad implication or a reason not to do it. But I think that is kind of the expectation about what would happen. Of course, the Democrats wouldn't respond if Republicans added seats. They just like hold some hearings and like send some mean tweets. Um, the predicate is the Democrats add a few seats. And I right. think it's quite obvious that the Republicans, the next possible juncture would do the same, except for add like yeah. 10 times as many. Um, right. But, yeah. you know, Honestly, if things like, are they, dire they enough. Try to pass a law, they try to pass a law with like 40 votes in the Senate. They'd be like, actually, like our new interpretation of the Constitution is we can add seats to the Supreme Court if only Ted Cruz votes for it. And like, that is now the law. <laughs> like, that would be their response. <laughs> and they would just like, be like, it's now Justice Matthew Kaczmarek. It's now Justice James Ho. Oh, like, that, that's just the world we're living in. Like, that would be the response. All right, we got another question about court reform. Hello, my name is Patrick, and I'm not a lawyer or law student, but I work in biomedical research. Uh, The question that I have for you all is, what are your thoughts on using mandatory jurisdiction as a way to rein in the YOLO court? 
I know that's something that historically the Supreme Court has fought against because, according to them, it takes away time from important questions, which, given what the current court considers important questions, seems like a great idea. I mean, right now, the idea of giving this court (laughs) any more cases and any more power makes my blood run a little cold. But the premise of the question, and this is something that a great forthcoming conversation we have with Steve Vladek highlights at a few points, is that their completely unbounded power to take and decide whatever kind of cases they want to is enormously problematic. So in a way, restoring a kind of mandatory jurisdiction would actually strip the court of some of its power, at least in its agenda setting sense. But it would give it more cases to decide and thus more power over all of us. And to my mind, at least, that's a major drawback. So look, people definitely seem to want to talk about what to do about this court. So let's play one more question. So assume a great outcome in 24 with enough Democratic senators willing to trash the filibuster in order to get things done, but maybe not enough willing to expand the court. So to limit this legislative breach of this YOLO SCOTUS, teach us about jurisdiction stripping. Can it work? And how does it work without being torched by the Supremes? I can try to take a stab at this one. You know, jurisdiction stripping just refers to removing some set of cases from the Supreme Court or basically limiting the Supreme Court's ability to decide them according to their preferred view about the law. Um, There is both kind of like a reality of jurisdiction stripping and then kind of a predictive question about what this Supreme Court might do about future efforts to limit their jurisdiction. The reality is there are actually a ton of statutes right now that strip the Supreme Court's jurisdiction and the federal court's jurisdiction generally over certain kinds of cases. So in habeas corpus cases where someone who's convicted in state court is challenging their conviction in federal court, um, Congress has stripped the federal court's ability to hear those cases according to the federal court's preferred interpretations of the law. In immigration cases, Congress has likewise limited the federal court's authority to review immigration decisions according to their preferred interpretation of the law. And under settled law, Congress can strip the Supreme Court and federal court generally um, authority to decide certain kind of cases. Now, what's unsettled um, and unclear is whether Congress could say strip the Supreme Court's authority to decide a bunch of constitutional cases because Congress didn't want the Supreme Court to reach a particular result. And I say that's unsettled because it's not clear that there are cases exactly upholding laws of that kind. And it's also very possible that this Supreme Court would say, you can't do that. That interferes with us being king and queens. Uh, you know, this Supreme Court has a very strong view of judicial supremacy where they are supreme and they get to decide what the law means. Um, and so in the event where, you know, you have a Democratic Congress passing laws that try to limit the court's authority rather than expand it, I think there's a pretty good chance that some of those statutes, at least in you know, like high profile cases, would get struck down. So because the outlook is bleak, we naturally got some questions on whether it is all worth it. Joyce wanted to ask, why be an attorney when the strength of my arguments or my client's case won't matter? Is it still worth it to be a lawyer? And then we also got this question from Frankie. I'm a 32-year-old actor and college instructor, and I'm thinking of mixing things up and going to law school with a focus on social justice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it's like to be a law student at the moment, given recent madness in the courts. Insert starry to what now? And any other advice you might have for law students these days? Thank you. Okay. Resident optimist. That, I'm going to do it. Like, Kate, <laughs> oh, you hold go. on. I'm going to channel my inner Kate. Okay. Nice. Joyce, Frankie, real talk. 
this path has never been smooth. Like, let's just be real. The court we have is very much like the court we've had in years past. There was a glimmer of momentum in the 1960s, 1970s. Maybe we got a little accustomed to winning. But for the most part, we've lost more than we've won. And we've still become lawyers. We've still agitated for change. And we've actually made change happen. So there is more you can do. There are things you can do. And whether this court is filled with hobgoblins or not, you have to keep doing it. You have to keep faith because if you don't, we might as well just all pack it up, put on a handmade garment, and find some babies and throw them in safe deposit boxes to be adopted. <laughs> gently. Like, uh, well, gently. gently. We, we, we are not Dick Durbin. We do not give up before not we even up. try like, to fight. That is your not butter it. knife away and get your briefs out because your briefs are a gun and you need to go to a gunfight. So... I'm not going to hear any of the cynicism. I am not done fighting. Like, I know it looks bleak. These are dark times. But we have each other. We have our law degrees. And we have the conviction that we are right and we are going to prevail. We just have to believe it. So let's all get together. We have to work even harder to overcome the malapportionment, all the crap that's gone on. But we can do that because we've always done that. And we're not going to stop. And they're not going to stop us. And also, are we just going to, like, let them win? Are we just going to let them win? No. I'm going to treat this like I treat aging. I am moisturizing, and I'm coming back for more. (laughs) It is also, to strike a practical note for one moment, the Supreme Court Court is a nightmare right now. Like, I don't think that's in question. But there are state courts. There are lower federal courts. There are many other venues in which legal arguments can be made and can prevail. And so, yeah, if you find this Supreme Court so dispiriting you cannot imagine getting out of bed and showing up to work there, like, I think that's Don't go work there. Don't go work there. (laughs) There are many other ways to practice and places to practice law and actually advance justice. And so don't check out of all of that just because this Supreme Court is in the mix. Hydrate, moisturize, and keep going. <laughs> That's right. Let's put that on a shirt, Ashley. <laughs> That's the shirt right there. We have a question from another student wanting to get a head start on her legal education. Hi, Strict Scrutiny crew. This is Josie from Arlington, Massachusetts. I started listening to your podcast right before the Dobbs League, and I recently got my dad into it too. Hi, dad. Anyway, I was wondering if you had any recommendations for what I can do to learn more about con law as a homeschooled high school freshman. So Josie, I just, okay, I love your energy. I love where your head's at. Um, I would encourage you just to enjoy high school. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that you should be reading in high school that has nothing to do with con law. So read great books, read fiction, like it, really enjoy your life and be a well-rounded person, Josie. But if you really must read something about constitutional law, I think there's some really fun books that you can think about. Like I, again, I was a super dork, but I read that Kermit Hall book, The History of the Supreme Court, one summer when I was in high school. I thought that was super fun. It's basically like an encyclopedia with little entries that are alphabetized. That was really cool. I enjoyed that. I also read one summer, in addition to a lot of Danielle Steele, I'm not recommending that to you, Josie, but if you should find those books, they're there. Um, In addition to Danielle Steele, I also read The Brethren by Bob Woodward and some other guy whose name also escapes me, which was sort of a deep dive into all of the internecine warfare at the court. And that was just so much tea that I was like, I have to go to law school because it's going to be just like this, right? Wrong. Um, So those are being my suggestions. But there are lots of great books and they're not about con law. So Josie, I encourage you to spend your summer doing that. 
there are some very good documentaries out there as well, some of which we have highlighted on this show. So there's a wonderful documentary about Polly Murray, who's like a real legal hero of ours. My name is Polly Murray. Yeah, that's wonderful. There is a series on Netflix called Amend about the 14th Amendment that has, you know, star-studded and features luminaries of the legal profession, including one Melissa Murray, um, but many others as well. Uh, So those, I think, are actually really nice introductions to both individuals you should know if you're going to seek a career in the law and also constitutional history. More documentaries, Josie, um, also by the creators of My Name is Polly Murray is the RBG documentary, which was really terrific. Um, Not by the makers of the RBG documentary. There's also Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, which was apparently underwritten. Is that funded by Harlan Crow? I was going to say, but I did watch it. Um, it was on PBS, and I watched it. And That's I actually the one where he says he lot. likes vacationing in Walmart parking lots. I mean, like yachts. you could just hate. So watch it's kind of it, like a, fun. So you, you recommended watching some fiction, right? So there you go. <laughs> Science fiction. Um, like you could hate watch it. It'd be really fun to hate to watch too. I think Josie should also spend the summer listening to her rational basis mm. review oh, yes. while she's like laying by the pool or mm-hmm. walking the dog or something like that. That sounds fun. That sounds like a good yeah. time for you, Josie. For folks who don't know it, that is our spinoff podcast. We did it about two years ago and then updated it last year. That's just an introduction to a lot of kind of basic concepts in constitutional law. So it's a very nice overview. Give you a taste of whether you actually want to go to law school. And the Supreme Court is about to render... I think like at least two of them I know. no longer overruled several cases. Yeah, we, we so go back now there. would be the time to listen for some history, right. get some history. So we also got this question from Sophie. You've mentioned the significant number of Justice Thomas's dissents when he was in the conservative minority. They're very detailed format and how these are now increasingly cited in lower court cases. And I'm wondering what legal bearing they have. You've inferred that he was purposefully working to build a library of these and I hope you can discuss their current and potential impact and use. And alongside, are the current liberal justices now actively doing the same? And what role can their dissents play in the future? I mean, I think people want one of the Democratic appointed justices to use their dissents to invite people to rethink shaping the law in ways that Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Rehnquist did when they were in the minority. I think We haven't seen that for a few different reasons. One, it might not just be like what some of the Democratic appointed justices think is within their wheelhouse or within their role. Um, It also might be that they think that they are on a court where they still can occasionally win some votes, but those votes come from people who are really sensitive and have a lot of feelings. And so there's a limit on the extent to which you can criticize them. Yes, I'm talking about Brett Kavanaugh, right? And also maybe the chief, the less so. Um, But that could limit the extent to which you see dissenting opinions, calling out the court in the most pointed terms, or urging people to just reject everything the court is saying and invite wholesale reconsideration of what they are doing. I think the conventional wisdom is that dissents are writings for the future and that they can sort of stake out new ground. Over time, the court can sort of move to those positions. But I think the point that Leah is making, which I think is a really good one, would actually be 
a really good larvae article is whether descents mean the same thing when you have such a malapportionment on the court. Like when you have a six to three conservative supermajority, can descents serve the same function that they might have in a five to four environment? I think that's an open question. You have a bunch of different sort of theories or philosophies of what descents should do. And one is if you're going to lose anyway, you can try to lose and to limit the damage of the majority opinion by seeking to characterize it as not doing the most, but actually as being properly understood as more cabined or narrow, things like that. Um, but I'm not sure how, eff- I mean, I think historically that that is a strategy that a lot of justices have used. I think query how effective it has been. I do think that what Leah said at the outset about if you're trying to broker the occasional like 5-4 win as opposed to always being in a three-justice sort of losing trio, maybe you have to hold your fire a little bit in dissent. But I wonder if that's equally true about all of the Democratic appointees. Like I think it's probably right that if Justice Kagan is the one brokering the occasional deals with Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice, maybe she can't. But I don't know that that's true in the same way about Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson. And we you know, we should say we haven't seen much from Justice Jackson as a writer yet on this court. Like it doesn't seem in possible to me that she could be the one throwing the flames and writing for history. I mean, I was thinking about this with the Biden re-election announcement video. Can you imagine a dissent that actually has language in it that gets picked up in on the campaign trail that the president uses? We haven't seen anything from this dissenting trio yet along those lines, but it might be really valuable to do that. So I, I hope that they find some way to do it, even though I understand the constraints. Speaking of things that matter, let's hear from Diana in Australia. Do oral arguments really matter? It sounds like a lot of the justices already have their minds made up. I think oral arguments matter in some cases, but not others with respect to outcomes. Like in the non-super ideologically significant high-profile cases, I do think oral argument can matter as to outcomes. Now, in the ideologically significant cases, do arguments matter? Not really with respect to bottom lines, I don't think, but they can affect how an opinion gets written and what reasoning gets five votes. At least that's kind of my intuition. All right. Next up, here's Chris. I listen to Strict Scrutiny on my way to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I'm an aerospace engineer. Justice Kagan famously said, we're all textualists now. And my question is, do you think that the liberal justices have more to gain by applying a textualist lens, or do we hurt ourselves by conceding from other methods of statutory interpretation? I love that Chris is an actual rocket scientist. Go, Chris. Like, <laughs> I, and that you're to listening to us. And Neil Gorsuch is a word scientist. So, <laughs> No, Chris is an actual rocket scientist, Leah. And Matthew Kaczmarek is a scientist. <laughs> Come on. Um, Chris, this is all to say that you could probably write an opinion about Mifepristone that we'd find more enlightening. So anyway. I mean, I think this is a good question, and I think it applies in many ways to kind of constitutional interpretive debates and originalism. Like, I think that there is a view that the liberal justices have kind of ceded far too much methodological and interpretive Mm -hmm. terrain, and maybe we just stay limited to statutory cases for the moment, by basically deciding to work within the paradigm of something that calls itself textualism, and through doing so have really expanded, I think, the contours of textualism. So everyone in the court uses a lot of sources, not just the words of a statute, as we've talked about every time we've discussed a statutory case. And yet, I do think something is lost when you don't sort of stake out a forceful critique of some of the shortcomings, the 
false representations made by proponents of textualism like Neil Gorsuch. And so I think it is unfortunate, and I would hope in the next generation of the to the kind of dissenting point that we have just been discussing, I think Elena Kagan famously declared that we are all textualists now and very famously disclaimed that position last term. And so maybe that marks a shift on the kind of liberal end of the court, and they are no longer going to suggest that we're all just going to use the label because why do labels matter and do the work that we're doing anyway, but actually sort of return to a fight about how to think about and do statutory interpretation. And now, on to the grab bag. Okay, so first, Jaden, who is a senior in college and is on the verge of committing to law school, wants to know, if you three were presented with opportunities to argue before the Supreme Court, would you take it? And if so, what area of the law would you like the argument to be focused on? To be clear, no one is asking, Jaden, no. although I love the premise of the question. I mean, Neil Catyall is taking up all of our arguments um, that we are obviously entitled to. I wrote an, a long article a few years ago about invitations to argue, which the Supreme Court occasionally issues, you know, once or twice a term these days. And it is sometimes to first-time advocates that the court issues these invitations. And I think that by virtue of this podcast, if for no other reason, but probably anyway, we were not in any danger of getting any of those invitations. But if one came to me, yeah, I would argue a case before the Supreme Court, and I think it would be a fascinating education. But that's the only circumstance in which I could see anybody entrusting me with a Supreme Court argument. What about the two of you? I think I'd say no before this Supreme Court, just because I think my presence there would actively undermine the interests of my client. Um, and I would constantly <laughs> on the verge or precipice, uh, I would <laughs> always be tempted to be like, fuck you, Neil, that's not funny, or like <laughs> something like that. And I don't know whether I could keep it in. Now, is there an alternative universe in which I would love to butt actually Neil from here to eternity on habeas? Sure, right? But I just, sometimes we make choices that close off future doors to us, and that's okay. I would say there'd be a 100% chance that you accidentally call one of them by their first right. names. <laughs> so. or, or coach, possibly coach. coach. <laughs> or so coach. To answer your question, coach. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm with Leah. I think I'd have to wear a disguise. <laughs> Could you argue in like a trench coat and a fake hat? One of the glasses with the mustache. Uh, I know. Well, you yeah. like, nothing to see here, folks. Um, next, we have a question from Sam Beck, an AI and machine learning scientist at General Motors, wants to know how concerned should we be about this idea of common good constitutionalism, which sounds terrifying, but may not be the sort of thing any judge would ever act on versus conservative wish casting. So common good constitutionalism is a theory about constitutional interpretation offered by, I think, Harvard law professor Adrian Vermeule that basically suggests federal judges should just do whatever they think is in the common good and promote the common good. Am I concerned about federal judges openly saying, this is what I'm doing? No. Do I think that's what a fair number of them do in some cases? Yes. So I think we're kind of living in a world where in some set of cases, the justices priors are doing a lot of the work um, and their background conceptions about like what is good and what is a sensible way of ordering the world are driving the opinions, but they're not saying that's what's happening. So that's kind of what I think about that. Let's hear a question from someone who I think is perhaps our youngest listener. My name is Martha. I am eight years old. I listen with my mom. 
because I want to be a Supreme Court justice. I want to ask, what is your favorite Supreme Court case? I like Roe v. Wade and Marbury v. Madison. Thanks for making a strong woman-led podcast. Bye. Okay, Martha, you are too fantastic for words. So those two, Roe versus Wade and Marbury, are absolute bangers. Um, here's another one that I'm going to put on your list because I think you're actually going to love it. Um, not in a good way. My favorite Supreme Court case to teach is a case called Bradwell versus Illinois or Bradwell versus the state. And it is a decision that's decided in 1873. Myra Bradwell wants to be a lawyer, and she goes to the Illinois Supreme Court to get a law license. She has all of the qualifications. She's done everything she's supposed to. And the court refuses her license because the Illinois legislature apparently does not have a law that permits women to be licensed practitioners. They also note that as a married woman, she's ineligible to make contracts, which makes it hard for her to represent clients. Myra sues. Uh, She sues under the 14th Amendment, and it's privileges or immunities clause arguing that the right to practice a vocation is one of the privileges or immunities of citizenship. And the court says that's actually not true. They decided a case just the day before, the slaughterhouse cases limiting the reach of the privileges or immunities clause. Uh, So Myra's out of luck with the court. But that's not why we read Bradwell. The real meat of Bradwell is in this concurrence from a guy called Associate Justice Joseph Bradley. And if the majority is interested in the Constitution, he's not so interested in the Constitution. He's interested in what he calls the Constitution of the family. And he says that he agrees with the majority. But the real reason why Myra Bradwell can't be a lawyer is because her real job, her job that God gave her, is to be a wife and a mother. And so there's just a whole meditation on the role of women. And I love teaching this case, not because this is what I aspire to, but because it really gives you a sense of how women were understood in the 1800s, even after the 14th Amendment, how hard it was to read women into the 14th Amendment. It also gives you a sense of the kind of benign paternalism that undergirded a lot of laws that limited women's roles in public life on the ground that they had better things to do, like raise their children or keep their home. So again, it's a banger of an opinion, Martha. And if you're interested in a strong woman-led podcast, you got to be interested in that one. I love that the date of the opinion, 1873, happens to be the same year that the Comstock Act, Mm -hmm. about which you Mm -hmm. may have heard much in recent days, was passed. And it really tells you something about the million. Not a coincidence, Martha. That law was passed. My favorite opinions, Martha, are going to be the ones you write overruling all of the things that Sam Alito (laughs) has done. Oh, good answer. Good answer. That is really good. Let me just briefly say – And world peace. (laughs) (laughs) If Loving versus Virginia is not a case that you have read, it is a wonderful case that sort of marries both equality principles and liberty principles. It's the the 1967 Supreme Court opinion striking down bans on interracial marriage. And it is like that – there's a period in which the court is the best version of itself and Loving is one of the cases that emerges from that period. So if you want an antidote to Bradwell versus Illinois, maybe pick up Loving versus Virginia. Which is actually called Loving et Ux. Loving and wife. So not not quite there, but sure. <laughs> Just the body of the opinion we're talking about. Here's a question from PJ who wants to hear our villain origin story. I would love to hear the story about how you guys, you know, asked Crooked to buy you, question mark. I would just love to hear the behind the scenes story of, of how that happened. We had a podcast and it was basically unsustainable to try to do everything ourselves. I mean, there's a reason 
why most podcasts are part of podcast networks. Um, it's pretty difficult to find a way to make a podcast sustainable and have a producer of the caliber of Melody. And we were making our own merchandise lines, running customer service, and there were all of these other things that we just didn't realize other podcasts do in order to build audiences that made being a part of a podcast network both necessary and I think really helpful. And so we asked. Yeah, don't ask, don't get. There exactly. were just conversations ongoing with other kind of podcast networks, and then we sort of reached out to Crooked and we're like, hey, we are a legal podcast sort of thinking about joining forces with some larger entity. And things just proceeded like really beautifully from there. So ladies, ask. Ask for everything. Okay. So this next question might be my favorite. This is from Natalia. Given everything that happened with Justice Thomas and his fancy friend, if a New York Times article were to drop about any of the other justices, who do you think that their fancy billionaire friend would be? Really curious for your answers. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure on this one, but I do think a part of my brain envisions that Justice Kagan would be friends with Jeff Bezos's ex, Mackenzie Scott. Like, I love that. I that? love that. I really yeah. do. I do. Thank you. Thank you. There was a period right after she was appointed where Justice Sotomayor was at some public event, like a dinner or something for Pearl Deaf or something with um, Mark Anthony and J-Lo. And since then, oh. I have like, she's got to be on J-Lo's Christmas card list. Yes. A hundred percent. Like so, and vice versa. Yeah. I, I hope so. And so I just love the idea of like Ben Affleck, j-lo and justice sotomayor like just kicking it like always right yes i think i bet katanji brown jackson hangs out with cool people oh definitely but doesn't that mean not billionaires right yeah these might no. be mutually exclusive who's a cool billionaire i bet she hangs out with michelle obama not a billionaire or okay. beyonce i bet i bet she hangs out with Meghan markle not does she hang out with is Meghan beyonce markle? not a billionaire Meghan markle is not a billionaire <laughs> um, i don't, think, I don't so. think you know that leah Beyonce is worth a measly half oh. bill. Okay. So Watch who are her actual words. billionaires. I don't know. Um, Oprah. Oprah. I bet Doesn't Oprah she say her household? Like, isn't that a billion dollars in the elevator years ago? Like, her plus J is a billion, right? Yes. Like, Beyonce, let's think about the that's, household. Shit goes down. There's a billion dollars in the elevator. Come on. Yeah. That's like a billion. Jay Z is a billionaire. You are correct. Oh, all 2. right. 2.5. It's mm -hmm. a lot of downloads. Wow. Okay. I just Googled. American billionaires, it's like a bunch of white dudes who seem pretty weird. So I don't <laughs> Checks know. Checks out. Checks out. Exactly. On a related note, uh, Michael on Twitter wants to know, have you ever bought a tract of land from a Supreme Court justice? And if so, which one? We have no disclosure obligations as podcast hosts, <laughs> dear listener. And so that will remain between us and our no, 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 never. no, no. I do not have the means to buy the kind of property that they apparently all own. Okay. Another question from Twitter is maybe the most important one we've ever received. Abby wants to know which Supreme Court justices listen to Taylor Swift and which era does each one fit best with? I'm sure that. Coach Kavanaugh listens to it because he's a father of daughters and they're like swift age, I think. So I think he's like underplayed here. I think he's KBJ he, has confirmed, I think. She oh, does. Yeah. She well, does. She, she does for sure. She dropped some lyrics yeah. in the moot yes. court, court right. with Shakespeare yeah. where she yeah. was able to invoke bad blood. So I, I just don't think Kagan he mentioned 
Kagan. Okay, yeah, sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So those are obvious. You're saying Brett is is, is I like think a kind of dark yeah, horse. Yeah, I think okay. I think he's okay. a dark horse, and he probably okay. does. Um, I mean, Sam Alito is obviously in his reputation. <laughs> era. If Steve Laddick talks shit, then I owe him nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of refuse to give some of them eras, um, but for Justice Jackson and Justice Kagan, I would probably give Justice Jackson the red era. That's a um, good one. Yeah, you know. Uh, I would give Justice Kagan like a folklore. Like it's like a little dark, like, you know, she's been going through some stuff with like trying to make peace evermore, with these folks. Yeah, 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 I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Next up, Megan from San Francisco, yay area, wants to know if we can hang out in real life. My question for you all is whether you would consider doing a tour similar to what the hosts of Pod Save America or Love It or Leave It do and uh, visit different cities across the country. I would love to see you all here in my backyard in San Francisco with a special guest, just a suggestion, Rob Bonta, our first uh, Asian American AG. These are all great suggestions, and I don't need a lot of coaxing to get back to the Golden State. So whatever you're pitching, I'm catching. Let's go. We would love to find a way to do more shows. It is a little difficult with our regular jobs to find days and times that work for all of us, but it is something that I think we are hoping Stanford, to Stanford, Golden Gate, Berkeley – Davis, let's talk. We can come do like I want to. I'm ready to go to the Bay Area. Let's do this. Okay, this next question came in from Twitter, and it is definitely for Melissa. Do you believe that King Charles is actually Prince Harry's father? I affirmatively do believe this because Princess Diana's James Hewitt era was after Prince Harry was born. Everyone thinks that James Hewitt is Prince Harry's father because they both have red hair. But in fact, red hair runs in the Spencer family. And Diana was a Spencer before she became the Princess of Wales. And her sister, Sarah Spencer, also has red hair. So there's a lot of like gingers in their family. There are also a fair number of gingerish people in Prince Charles's line. So if you see pictures of Prince Harry with his beard and his uniform, he looks a lot like Prince Philip did when he went to Antarctica in the like late 1950s, early 1960s. So I really do think this whole idea that James Hewitt is Harry's father is really spurious and just meant to savage the ginger prince. And I will not stand for it. The end. <laughs> Another question that may be for Melissa. What did John Lovett get on his LSAT? So this is a mystery, right? Um, <laughs> he talked a good game about his LSAT score, but didn't actually disclose it. He just said sort of vague things about how he had such a great LSAT score. And I don't really know what that means. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't questioning. I, I thought it was weird that he brought it up. But, you know, I didn't want to – it was his show, so I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> so, But he's never actually actually given me a number, so – all right, we've got a question from Instagram that is just three words. Skincare recommendations. Oh, yeah, another one for Melissa, I guess. No, this well, you all can participate. I I've, I've coached you well over the years. We get participation trophies, Kate. <laughs> you all have dewy skin. Again, I think you just whatever you do, you just got to do it consistently. So, I don't know what Sam Alito uses on her skin. Some people have suggested it's very high end. Others have suggested that maybe he's just patting in olive oil or something. Some people do that. It's actually very effective mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you don't break out to just pat olive oil lightly into your skin. I love True Botanicals. True Botanicals 
holler at your girl. I love that stuff. I think it's amazing. I also use like CeraVe, which is a drugstore brand. So also very, very effective. I think there's lots you can do. Um, so many good skincare options right now. GenuCell is also great. Like they have a really good eye cream for when your eyes are puffy. So I think that's a great one. So lots of different choices. Do what works for you. Like and do what works for Sam Alito once he tells you. Have either of you ever used a Hanacure mask? No. Yes. So you put them on, they're yes. very intense, and they yes. do this and crazy like, thing like, where they kind of contort your face muscles, yeah. and you look insane. But and then, then you take you it off. take it off. And you look amazing. It's kind of amazing for, like, yeah. days. Um, I mean, they're intense. Yeah. Our mutual friend, Melissa, Rachel, and I did these a couple weeks ago. And, yeah, so I think I recommend them. I love that. Like, I'm, I'm really actually mad that you did not include me in this next <laughs> Okay, game. next time next time we're going to do this with okay, you, honestly. Great. I would love good. to. Another one from Instagram, just four words, favorite Taylor Swift song. I'm actually really excited for this question because I've been wondering. (laughs) Okay. It's obviously the 10-minute version of All Too Well and specifically the version that she performed on Saturday Night Live. That's the number one. Um, Number two would be all the other versions of All Too Well, um, Tide. Number three is Tis the Damn Season. Um, And then four is The Field. I weirdly, even though I love her more recent albums much better, like I love Evermore, I love Folklore, I love Midnight's, my favorite standalone songs are kind of like old classics. Like I love 22 and I love We Are Never Getting Back Together. Like I I love love those songs so much. Um, And uh, yeah, I think I'm going with those two. So my favorite Taylor Swift song is We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. I like that one a lot. Um, I also like Antihero um, and Lavender Haze. I like weirdly like Lavender Haze. I also like Lover. I'm a champagne problems girly. Oh. Um, and I was also among the blessed who got to hear Death by a Thousand Cuts as the surprise song in Dallas. And that was one of the best moments of my life. Good one. I'm so jealous. Wait, Ashley, what's yours? Wait, oh, Ashley, what's yours? Mine, yeah. I think it's Mirrorball. Oh. Are you okay? <laughs> I am an older sister through and through. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I need to adapt mine. Okay. One. All too well, 10-minute version. Two, would have, could have, should have. Three, all the other versions of All Too Well. Four, Tis the Damn Season. Five, Field. Okay, now we're set. That's a good ranking. Thank you. Okay, we've got another (laughs) question from Instagram that says, I am a divorced single mom of twins wanting to run for office. Is this a ridiculous dream? No, you want to be Katie it's Porter. Amazing. It's amazing. You should totally do it. We will, like, we support you. You should totally do this. And Justice Jill. Exactly. I was going to say, or Justice Karofsky, who ran as a single mom for Wisconsin Supreme Court, as she talked about on our episode in Wisconsin. There's a great resource, Run for Something. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So check out the website, Run for Something. It has a lot of great resources. If you're interested in running for office, it's a good place to start. I mean, but honestly, that was like the easiest question to answer. You should totally do this. Like, leave no power on the table. You should totally do this. Don't negotiate with yourself. And actually, the founder of Run for Something did a great interview on the Ezra Klein show sometime in the last year. That's a very nice, if you're a podcast listener anyway, one hour distillation of a lot of the kind of on the ground considerations that go into running for if it's a start local office makes sense. And anyway, I think that that'd be a good way to spend an hour if you're really thinking about this. Listen to that conversation. Okay. And then last question. Um, what do you think each of the justices eats for breakfast? Justice Alito eats unicorns. <laughs> no, he just drinks, <laughs> he their drinks blood, the blood, Melissa. Come well, on. Same idea. That's Come what on. I mean. Okay. That's what I meant. I mean, <laughs> I mean, a justice, like the New Yorkers, I feel like are the promises there aren't really good bagels in 
D.C. And so I don't know, like, if Kagan and Sotomayor can find good bagels in Washington, D.C. I don't I think-, think Sotomayor eats bagels. I think she'll occasionally have, like, a piece of toast and some fruit. I feel like KBJ is, like, a smoothie breakfast drinker, like, maybe a protein Green shake. juice. Yeah. A green yeah. juice. Yeah. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. 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 Brett Kavanaugh definitely drinks green juice and tells you about it. No, he drinks, like, a protein no. shake. Come on. But he tells no. you about I it. I think, like, eggs. I think eggs and bacon. I think he eats, oh. like, a big greasy breakfast. With a protein shake, with this bros from the gym, come on. Kavanaugh is the big greasy breakfast to like sop up all the beer, yeah. right? Oh, okay. Totally. He's okay. like the hunger. Also, the guys from okay. the gym. Right, I'm sorry. Right, right. I don't want to be mean, but like what evidence of gym going are you seeing well, under that like, robe? Just because he thinks of himself oh. as a bro. Yeah, you know? yeah, That's but like right. going to play ball. I don't think he's like lifting weights. Yeah. <laughs> I, bet, I bet Amy Coney Barrett goes to her CrossFit box and then comes home and makes yeah. a protein shake. Yeah. She drinks a protein shake. Yeah, for yes. sure. What do you think the chief justice is eating? He's eating oatmeal. He's totally eating yes. oatmeal. Mm. Like bland, like, unseasoned, mm-hmm. with oatmeal. raisins, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, too much color. No, <laughs> no. no raisins. Um, all right, shall we move on to mean tweets? Let's do it. These aren't actually mean tweets. They're um, some mean reviews that I just screenshotted. Um, Mean (laughs) tweets. I adjusted my notifications a long time ago where I just don't get notified of tweets by people I don't follow because it just made the platform unusable um, without that. So this is all I've got. Um, I can describe the tweets that people have screenshot about me that have been sent, but I'm probably going to get the wording a little off. Okay, so um, review one. <clears throat> Leah's constant funny, air quote, interruptions are not all that funny, and her sarcasm gets the discussion off more times than not. Leah adds little to the legal discussion and detracts with her, comma, frankly, comma, tired and repetitive humor. That's one. <laughs> did I tell you guys? I'm so I like, livid. No, I, where is this? Is a tweet somebody no, 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 tweeted? No, no, these, these are the Apple, Apple reviews. Podcasts. These are Apple reviews. Oh my I god! I'm so these. glad I don't. I stopped reading these a long time painful. ago. Unfortunately, I get notifications of them um, oh. to our <laughs> Gmail account. Did I tell you guys about the speech I did to the Michigan Law Review women, where I I thought it would be funny to do a like mean tweets thing, and I got up and I read like three mean things and they all look so horrified i just stopped and i was like oh i guess wow they were that bad yeah so oh my gosh that's one so i'm gonna read one this is literally just a couple of days ago from someone who wants to call themselves alchemist but has spelled it with a j (laughs) so just just the setup um the subject line is cattiness undermines their intelligence slash argument i've listened to this podcast for a few years now and i absolutely love their insights into the court the hosts are excellent guests on other podcasts such as psa kate is a welcome voice of reason (laughs) leah and melissa's constant alcohol (laughs) jokes and teenage humor distract and derail the show both leah and melissa are unprofessional and lack seriousness for important discussions such as the dobbs decision and its fallout when they are hosts but can demonstrate it when they are guests on other podcasts my final straw is the frequent misinterpretation of what people say during clips and the pleasure leah and melissa get from their meanness vibes such as trump style derogatory nicknames and worse than alito or gorsuch whining I mean, sir, I am you so are. glad I stopped reading these. I'm looking at them Thank now. Thank God for Kate. Oh, my God. But I, we still got a one-star review. It's not enough to save our, our numbers. Oh, my God. Part of why, you know, 
wanted to do the podcast, speaking of villain origin stories, like in the tone and manner that we did is there is this discomfort with women who have senses of humor and make jokes. And there is a felt impulse to like characterize that as like bitchiness or cattiness or mean girlsness rather than when guys do it it's like irreverent and edgy and funny plus there's just a fucking difference between punching down and punching up (laughs) i'll read one now i love this podcast but kate talks too fast most of the time today she started out at a good tempo but after the first case her speaking speed began to hurdle (laughs) far too fast again um yeah yeah that's just not the same kate sorry um so (laughs) uh, i am gonna pull out though the two examples of specific appearance related (laughs) messages that we got both of which i think were in a constructive spirit the point of a podcast there's many points of a podcast one i thought of the benefits of hosting a podcast was that we actually wouldn't get attacked for our appearances right it's just our voices so no no, turns (laughs) out Never thought that. That's very – well, I was obviously naive. Anyway, so this was one that Melissa was excluded from. I'm really sorry you're written out of this exchange, Melissa. It was just an email to Leah and to me in which a listener diagnosed both of us with pretty serious cases of rosacea (laughs) and recommended a course of treatment um, in a very, very detailed email that, again, I think was really constructive. But I've been to the dermatologist a lot. Like, I've got a lot of moles I have to get checked out. No one has ever diagnosed me with rosacea. I don't really think I have rosacea. And I don't think I need to take all the medications that this listener <laughs> suggested. It was very striking email. The other one, I don't think I sent you guys in preparation for today, but this was also somebody who had seen me somewhere and sent me a long email recommending their plastic surgeon <laughs> because, <laughs> because the listener decided I was a perfect candidate for a very sort of low impact, not terribly invasive surgical procedure to get my ears attached to the side of my head because they stick out too far. Oh, and it was, uh, again, okay, a constructively Kate, intended email. <laughs> but it was like, I do actually have pretty sticky outy ears, but the beautiful thing about aging is one cares so much less about this. And I hadn't thought about it in a long ass time. And then this email came in and I was taken back to this incredibly young place of like having these big flappy ears that people would like construct emails about. I anyway, guarantee so, again, you the person who wrote that literally looks like a gremlin. So, <laughs> Like, forget them. Can I read oh, one that I do yeah. like? Yeah. Because it's actually, okay. Yes. Right. I love Melissa. This is by the Queen of Fort Green. <laughs> Five stars. I love Melissa. And it's serious. Why are you so delightful on MSNBC? Whip smart. Such a cutie. I'll have you commit adultery. I don't care. I'm here. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> It's right so next similar to, one, to my plastic it's, surgery. It's, no, it's literally so right. No, it's literally right next to one called Scotus Mean Girls. Which is, right. <laughs> my point. It's gone downhill somewhat with too much sarcasm and attempts at wit. It's become less informative over time as they attempt catchy slogans. The mean spiritedness has become off-putting. Update. Still boring, still on balance. The sarcasm is cringier than ever. Very hostile towards religion. Very sarcastic all the time about everything. Insightful commentary when they leave out the mean-spiritedness. They do a disservice to their listeners by not even attempting to present any alternative to their strong opinions. The hostility is palpable. You should hear all of the things that don't make the podcast. Uh, right? The true. In there is hostile and inappropriate. Wellness, wellness life, you would be, you, you would clutch your pearls even harder, my friend. Update. Still always hysterical, sarcastic, and painful to listen to. More nuance can be found elsewhere. 
The vocal fry is just unbearable. Speaking of vocal fry, um, <laughs> a classic <laughs> sample review is uh, Leah's vocal fry is more than I can handle. I struggle to understand how someone who speaks like that can give college lectures. I'd have to drop her class. This is how do we- it. <laughs> drop it. <laughs> Don't take this it. This is how I fucking talk. This is how a woman's <laughs> voice sounds. We should say, like, we're we're just pulling out the shitty ones, but there are some really lovely ones. You all are so nice to put these nice comments. Here's one from Maria Rodriguez from July of 2022. You are three incredible women. I'm so thankful for this podcast and the honest presentation. You're welcome, Maria. We love you too. DK also says, we are so lovely, and this person loves the podcast so, so much, and learned about it through Chris Hayes, who, as you may know, is a friend of the pod. Mr. Kate Shaw. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's also the one that called us an abortion of a podcast and three pseudo-intellectual harpy lib chicks. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But was it a self-managed abortion of a podcast? (laughs) was not included in the description. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we really appreciate your constructive feedback emails, as well as kind notes and reviews of reaching out, because this is just, I guess, part of the business. It is. There is something about the psychology of doing this where – this is why I stopped reading the Apple reviews. Like, even if you have 10 great reviews and one terrible one, you feel – just entirely shitty. Yeah. Like the ten don't are completely erased. I don't. By the one bad one. I don't. <laughs> okay, like, that's that is no, good. Really? I mean, like fuck these people. I mean, like everything ain't for everybody. Like you, yeah. like yeah. we don't have to be your cup of tea. It's totally fine. Like you can go listen to the Heritage Foundation podcast. That might be your speed. Cool. Like if yeah. you like it, just don't I love leave it. us one of these reviews on the way out. Uh, I mean, right. you can do, no, like, but my po- my <laughs> my point is, if you do like the podcast, be like Maria and just drop us a review that says so. Yeah. Thank you so much for writing in with all your grab bag questions. Thank you for leaving us helpful, constructive, positive reviews. We really appreciate it because, like, we are actual people um, and like women. You know, we're so, doing this, you know. We are uh, actual women people-ish. doing this in our spare time, and so yeah. Like, if you like it, we love that you like it. If you don't like it, move along. <laughs> we're not losing sleep over it, and you shouldn't either. Like, no need to be a dick. Keep moving. Keep it moving. But I think, like, also on another slightly more positive note about all of this, like, part of the point is everyone makes choices about the things they want to do and, like, what they're okay with. And you find people whose judgment you trust. And then you just kind of do what you want to do and, like, what you think has to be done. And that's just kind of it. So basically, are you a Meghan Markle person or a Kate Middleton person? Like, if you're <laughs> a Kate Middleton person, that's cool. We're probably not going to be best This friends. is going to cool, generate though. some negative tweets and reviews. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> Melody, take it out. Bring them on. No, we stand by that. All right. Should we, should we land this plane? Okay. Is it a private jet? We can just keep flying. <laughs> it refuels automatically, something like that. It's self-managed. No, this is it's not a self-managed nope, private plane. Not in any kind of lux accommodations. We are in economy. All right. Coming down. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. And as just discussed, if you are as opinionated as we are and if you like our podcast, and only then consider dropping us a review. <laughs> 
Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Lippman, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. It is produced and edited by Melody Rowell with audio engineering by Kyle Seglin, music by Eddie Cooper, production support from Ashley Mizuo, Michael Martinez, and Ari Schwartz, and digital support from Amelia Montooth. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.